HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio, and I'm your host here on the Heritage Radio Network for this half hour. And today, our sponsor is Edwards of Surrey, Virginia. The Edwards family has joined Heritage Foods USA and Newman Berkshire Farm to develop an all-natural product line featuring Suriano hams, Berkshire smoked slice and slab bacon, and Berkshire smoked sausage links. These new products are produced exclusively from purebred, six-spotted Berkshire pigs raised completely outdoors on independent family farms. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. For more information about S. Wallace Edwards & Son, visit www.edwardsvaham.com. And speaking about Berkshire pork and pigs and home family-raised meats and farms, my guest today is Jake Dixon, the owner of Dixon's Farm Stand Meats. Welcome, Jake. Thanks for having me, Linda. And uh, Jake's, uh, it's, it's... a wonderful new butcher shop that is part of this trend that we're seeing. You know more. A lot of people are no longer satisfied buying meat, anonymous cuts of meat under plastic wrap in the supermarkets, although I would say the percentage is still higher there. But there is a trend for people to be more concerned about where their meat comes from and who produces it and how it's butchered. And so we're seeing, particularly in um, the... Uh, the New York City area, a lot of, um, well, not even, well, I guess all over, a lot of, a lot of small butcher shops that are focusing on what Jake calls traceable meats. So, Jake, tell us a little bit about what your how your butcher shop is different from, uh, well, supermarket is easy to know, but tell us a little bit about your butcher shop and how it's different. Sure, um, our butcher shop is different in a number of ways. The first being that we're opening, or we've been open for six months now. And congratulations, six months. That's that's good. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, whereas most butcher shops in New York City have kind of seen a slow death over the last 15 years. Uh, so while we're bucking the trend, we're opening and flourishing where many are, are going out of business, unfortunately. Um, the second is that the source of our meat, and really which is why I believe we're flourishing, is that we source everything directly from small family farms in New York State and Connecticut. Uh, we buy everything directly from the farmer, no middlemen, no intermediaries. The farmer just has to get the live animal to the slaughterhouse, and then I pick up from there every week. 
We do all everything in house. So we bring in the pigs quartered, uh, or sorry, beef quartered, lambs whole, and pigs just split in half. We do all the butchering in full view of the customer. We make all of our own sausage. We smoke all of our own bacon, ham. We do everything in house. If it's got meat in it, we make it there. Well, and you've got a great butcher, Adam Tiberio, and, and of a course great chef as well, and a great chef doing prepared foods, Gabe Ross. Yes. Um, you know, it's interesting, before the show started, uh, Jake and we were talking about, um, this is a show primarily about culinary history, and what I'm doing these um, next several weeks, and I'm sure on into the future, hopefully, is inviting people like yourself on, people who are making history, making culinary history, because in, in, in a sense, it's a, also a return to the past. Well, I think we're a mix, actually, of of taking a step backwards in terms of artisanal products and butcher shop, you know, cut to order, you know, having a skilled cutter on site um, and making a lot of our own things in house, uh, which most butcher shops and supermarkets have moved away from. But we're also creating something new, um, you know, since the early you know 20th century, 1900s, beef has been coming into New York City from Chicago. So the fact that our our most of our meats are locally sourced is in some ways a new thing. Mm-hmm. Um, we're we're creating something new in that we're taking the old school butcher shop um, and we're we're merging it with this new movement towards traceability, sourcing uh, locally, working with small farms. Um, because in the past, I don't think that there was much emphasis because things weren't so bad for the consumer. One of the, the main reason I think there's become this kind of backlash and people looking to buy from us is that, you know, in the past, it didn't really matter if you knew the name of the farm because we weren't using hormones, antibiotics, you know, feedlots to such a great extent. So our products in our country were na- raised mostly naturally. Um, but as the wider industry and industrial has become so industrialized, there's become this giant gulf between what small farms do and what the rest of the industry does. I think that started to drive our customers to wanting to know more. Um, and I think for me, that started with the farmer's markets, people interacting directly with the farmer and starting to hear the stories about how great it could be and how different the meat you buy in the supermarket is. That's right. I mean, because there used to, as you say, there used to be butcher shops on every corner um, way back when. But even then, you know, well, it was it was considered progress, I guess, when all the cattle that were raised east were shipped back out to the Midwest and slaughtered and shipped back again. But also the fact that it became such big business and anyone, you know, you'd hear, you read uh, tales of, the filthy, dirty stuff going on in slaughterhouses and the habits. And, and it's sort of nice to know that that you're dealing with somebody who's who's cleaned up their act. <laughs> oh, we try every day. We try every day to be a little bit better, do things a little bit, you know, uh, to improve every day for our customers, uh, get our products better. Uh, we work with our farmers to create the, the you know, a better meat, uh, to scale up. Um, everything is kind of with the eye towards, you know, that final product that someone walks in and buys that, they can have complete confidence in the way it was raised and that, uh, you know, where it came from. We can tell you every piece of meat, what farm it came from, where it was slaughtered, where it was butchered, um, often the breeds. Uh, we move more and more towards, you know, being able to do it perfectly every day. Now, are you, do you deal strictly with humanely slaughtered animal slaughterhouses or, I mean, what, I know that's a big movement as well. <laughs> sure. Um, for me, a slaughterhouse, it's all about scale. Um, you know, you can talk about you know the wonderful things Temple Grandin has done for the larger industry, and that's taking a plant. And that's, Temple Temple Grandin being, um, she's a PhD um, and researcher for uh, humane treatment. Um, 
uh, of animals in Slaughterhouse specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's worked with, I think, about this point, 85% of the animals. I think that's this, this guy recently read. 85% of the, the animals in our country that are slaughtered, um, ruminants, I believe, are, are sent to Slaughterhouses that she's designed or had a hand mm-hmm. in designing. Um, but her efforts have been concentrated on large-scale industrial slaughterhouses, places where they'll sa- slaughter 400 head of cattle an hour, 24 hours a day. So it's great the improvements that they've been making for humane treatment at those facilities. Um, I've completely opted out of using meat that comes through those facilities and through the industrial farms that support them. Um, so we work directly with the farmers. Uh, they have to just get the animal. We work with one small family-run slaughterhouse called Double L Ranch, about 12 miles west of Albany, run by a guy named Lowell Carson and his two sons. Um, and on a busy day, they slaughter probably seven uh, steers. Um mm. You know, on Easter, maybe 40 lambs in a day. So we're talking about a very different kind of operation. It's one animal at a time. You know, they they slaughter, skin, eviscerate. You know, one animal start to finish. Um, That's their process. And the scale, you know, it does a lot for humane treatment. No, there's not these massive pens that animals are being moved to. They're not moving through a kill floor. Um, it's just a, a different environment. You know, mm-hmm. I brought people there. I brought vegetarians. And people see this and say, not necessarily a vegetarian is going to say, I now want to eat meat. Yeah. But they're saying, you know, I don't really have a problem with this. Right. Um, you know, it, the animals are calm. They're not moved a lot. Um, so it's just a very different place. Um, the other thing, a big advantage for the consumer is the level of scrutiny that things are getting. Um, the speed that things go at a large slaughterhouse is dangerous for workers. It's not great for animals. Um, and also from, an, uh, I guess, a regulatory perspective, it's a problem. At a big slaughterhouse where they're slaughtering 400 an hour, there might be five, six, seven inspectors on site. They do an anti-mortem, so a pre-slaughter inspection to mm. make sure the animal's healthy. And then a post-mortem, they look at the carcass uh-huh. to deem it fit for human consumption. So that's five inspectors, six inspectors for every 400 animals in an hour. Now, the USDA also provides an inspector for this facility. They have to be there anytime an animal is being slaughtered. So now we have a ratio of instead of five to 400, we're talking seven to one. Um, or the other the way. The other way, one, one inspector for seven. Right. For seven. So the level of scrutiny that the, the consumer is getting is much greater. You know, And that means that when they look at the carcass, they're not moving as fast. So if they see any... Uh, content that came from the gut, which is where E. coli would be, um, they're going to more likely to see it, have it trimmed off, and you know it's going to be a safer product going out. Um, you know, Also, where we're not processing and mixing multiple animals from multiple sources, it's one animal at a time, you know, process one at a time. Right. Um, so that it's a very different thing from a food safety, from an animal handling, um, from a, you know traceability. I never have to worry. There's no complex tracking system. Um, there's seven animals. It's really easy to keep track of seven animals. And, and I know you went and picked them up because you were on the road yesterday going <laughs> exactly. and picking them up. Um, you know, it's, I think most people uh, for years never gave it a thought mm-hmm. where you know how the meat was slaughtered, where it came. You, know, you well, went to the supermarket, you bought your package of meat. It's not so much the fault of the consumer truthfully the especially the beef industry and pork industry <clears throat> have become very very good at keeping this hidden from the public view you know i saw i think i have last year's july numbers for slaughter in our country and it's something like 10 million pigs 6 million beef animals sent to slaughter we're, we're killing uh, in one month so we're killing on a massive scale in one month one month wow so we're killing on a, a massive scale 
Um, and you never see it. I mean, when was the last time you even recognized that there was a slaughterhouse nearby? Um, so this is all happening in huge numbers, but it's largely hidden. You know, they've pushed this. The industry is consolidated. So there's fewer slaughterhouses just doing more work. And it's easier for them to tuck them away on mm-hmm. places where people don't see. So, you know, the major population centers, it's very far from where this meat is raised and slaughtered and, and butchered. You know, so we're, we're just seeing the end product. And that was purposeful, you know. Um, and, you, you know, the industry has marketed itself very, very well. It, it's big business and they spend a lot of money convincing the consumer that this is a great natural product. Unfortunately, you know, and the USDA has kind of let them get away with a lot you know until recently the term natural meant almost nothing um in the industry though to a consumer they hear the word natural and they have a picture of a, a cow in a in a pasture <laughs> and you know this idyllic view so they were tapping into people's perceptions pretty uh, adeptly well and in terms of you're talking about natural um do you are these small farms where you're um purchasing a lot of the meat from do you um, see, um, seek out grass-fed corn finished or, or I mean, we set a base, pork um, that's raised on a particular diet? Or? We set a baseline for all of the farms, which is, uh, we call it natural. So our tagline is uh, local natural meaty. Um, we define natural as no hormones, no hormones, no antibiotics, a purely vegetarian diet, um, and no feedlots, all small and farm raised. After that, I look for farmers who are doing something interesting, unique at our kind of the, the top of their field. Um, so we do primarily uh, heritage breed and heritage breed crosses for the pigs. We just brought some uh, three-quarter Russian red wild boars into the shop today. Uh, we do a lot of 100% Berkshire, Berkshire crosses, large black crosses. Um, I don't believe in heritage breeds for heritage breed's sake. I think it's, uh, for me, heritage breeds are, because we're trying to go back to pasture-raised pork, Mm -hmm. um, which the commercial varieties don't do as well on pasture, we're going back to older genetic stock, which are these heritage breeds, who do great and they thrive outdoors. Like the large blacks will eat tons of grass and they get this great rich meat, um, dark color. Um, So I look for farmers who are looking to do interesting, unique things, and in some cases that means heritage breed, um, in other cases not. Right, like Uh, Patrick Martins of Heritage Foods mm -hmm. and and Heritage Radio Network, Um, you know, partnering up with these farmers who are willing to to do that, to to get them out in pasture. pasture. And we uh, we sell everything under the farmer's name and production method. So when you buy a piece of meat, it'll be labeled as the farm. And if it's um, you know grass fed, like hundred percent, when we say grass fed in the shop, we mean hundred percent grass fed, grass finished, no grain at any time of its life cycle. Um, and then we also sell our pasture raised and then grain finished stuff from a different farm, Righteous Organics. Hmm. And you'll always know what you're getting. I see different beef for different people. Some people are buying because they believe that steers shouldn't you know eat any grain or they prefer the flavor or for a variety of health reasons um, other people want that beautifully marbled you know grain finished product um, as long as for me I'm comfortable with the way the animal is raised and I have a good relationship with the farmer um, well, I, I don't I don't really go have a preference either way we're going to take a short break and then we're going to come back and talk about some of those end products that we can find at the butcher shop
welcome back. It's Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio with Jake Dixon, and today we're sponsored by Edwards of Surrey, Virginia. Um, Jake, we were talking about um, all the methods of, of farming and, and slaughtering um, the beef, and you haven't been a butcher your whole life. You're still very, very young, I know that. But <laughs> um, And for but, the record, I don't consider myself a butcher. You're not I, a butcher, no. But I mean, the getting into the whole meat industry and and the end product, the butchering end product. How did this come about for you? Uh, I did come about this later later on. Um, I had uh, worked in marketing and consulting for a number of years, uh, always looking for a business that I wanted to start. I'm very entrepreneurial by spirit and I'm very passionate about food. Um, even while doing my more corporate jobs in the past, um, I spent a lot of time kind of playing around in the food industry, different things on the side. And I wanted to start a business. I wanted to do something with food. And the more and more I, I researched things I don't know, for, and, and got involved, um, the more uh, the more I, I kind of was drawn towards the meat industry. Um, you know, here I found that the more I read, I realized here's this product I eat all the time. You know, I'm a, I'm a pretty voracious carnivore, and I knew nothing about it. And if I knew nothing about it, and I read a, a tremendous amount, um, then I figured there must be lots of people that are similar that would want to know more if if their eyes were opened a little bit. So that kind of got me beginning down the path um, of, you know, I think. That, that there's a lot of there's a there's not enough information about our meat industry out and there. And most of what there is is scary. That's right. The more I learned, the more I realized what you know and saw what's available to the consumer is largely of poor quality and uh, and poorly raised. So there there was a opportunity there from a business perspective, but more I, in the beginning I took it as a purely research. I want to learn more. Um, and I started writing this business plan while I was still uh, consulting for a company in Portland and um you know, the more I, I got into meat and realized meat is incredibly complicated. It's hard to do well, which is one reason few people do. And, you know, so while I was doing all this book research and writing this business plan, I said, I could quickly start this and quickly lose all the money I've saved for it. <laughs> and it won't have done anybody any good. So I threw away the business plan. I just said, I'm going to leave my, my job and get knowledge wherever I can. So my first stop, I, uh, I went and worked on a sheep farm in Ithaca, New York, uh, actually Cornell University's sheep farm. Um, and it's just, you know, I'm just going to, I call it my masters of meat. I wanted to start on the farm and work through the whole industry and learn as much as possible wherever I could. And uh, it was pretty eye-opening. You know, I had all this book learning, you know, I had read, uh, you know, all of Saladin's work. Um, but being on the farm was uh, pretty eye-opening. You know, most of the popular press that's written about agriculture paints a very black and white uh, you know, you read Michael Pollan, who I'm not knocking Pollan. I think he's done great things. Yeah. But he paints uh, it's industrial or it's, you know, this idyllic Joel Saladin, you know, biodynamic farm. And the truth is, especially in the Northeast, most meat producers are somewhere in the middle. And uh, they're doing great things. And some of them maybe just need a market for a more specialized product that, you know, butchers like me are trying to create. Um, but others are already doing it, and they're just not getting paid for it because yeah. they're raising these animals in line with their philosophy and just selling them to the commodity market, and they just don't get a premium. Well, that was one of my thoughts is that you know we have a lot of people to feed um, in this country. We don't have to eat as much meat as many of us do. Uh, no, <laughs> no offense to the butcher I'm, I'm an advocate. Yeah, smaller portions, better quality. Mm -hmm. But we do. We have how can how can a movement like this? Um, envelop and grow to to be able to produce enough for all of the of the country our country well, alone i mean 
you know. I, I try not to get ahead of myself too yeah. much. Uh, I, For me, it's let's start with New York City. We've got the right circumstances right now. New Yorkers have been become enamored with buying close to the farm, like one step removed or no step removed. So at farmer's markets or from people like um, Heritage Food or people like me where we can tell them where their meat came from. Um, so the opportunities are right. New Yorkers have more money than many places in the country, which because right now there's no infrastructure, it's expensive to do what we're doing. Yeah. Um, we're not charging a lot of money because we, uh, you know, we, we want to make a bigger profit or are making a bigger profit. The products are more expensive because where no infrastructure exists, we have to create our own. So I would love it if someone, if there was a company that existed that could bring these products from the farm to the slaughterhouse to me without right. me having to do it. But because no company exists that would do it to my specifications right now, I have to go up myself. And that requires, you know, owning our own vehicles and, you know, spending time on the road. And so all of these costs get rolled into the, the cost of, uh, of the product, unfortunately. And I, that I was um, actually talking to my son last week on the show, and, and he tries to buy these quality meats. He buys some meats from you, as a matter of fact. And he said it is a problem because his food costs, it does, you know, make his food costs go a little over the limit. And when you walk into some of these um, butcher shops that are, are buying these quality meats, yes, you're going to spend, people sometimes balk and go, oh my God, I'm going to pay, you know, $12, $15 for a chicken. Mm-hmm. Well, Americans, I have to say Americans, and it's been documented and written about that um, of any country, and here we have all these resources, spend less on their weekly market basket than any other country. Yeah. I mean, France has always been, well, I think French, but they, yeah, they but always spend more money think, per, you know, yeah, uh, I mean, per I think item. we spend under 15% of our income uh, on, on food, food, whereas other countries, it's more like 25. We've kind of become enamored with cheap food, cheap chicken, um, where cheap is good, but not at the, the sacrifice well, of now, our Well, yeah, now it's coming back health. to, you know, <laughs> it's raising its head and saying, hey, we, yeah. you know, do, do better for your body. Yeah. Right? You know, I originally was expecting to, to go into the wholesale business um, because my background's in business-to-business marketing. Mm-hmm. It's what I knew. But the more I got into it, um, the more, for a number of reasons, I leaned towards retail. Um, and one of the, the things is, is the cost. Um, I choose not to compete for the most part in New York City's wholesale business because it's a, a high volume, low margin business. And we pay the farms too much. Our cost for transportation is too much to really even bother competing in it. So while we wholesale a few things to friends like Zach, um, for the most part, we sell everything retail because we need that additional retail margin to be able to pay for the farmers, to pay for the additional infrastructure. Yeah. So when you see those big trucks rolling in from uh, Kansas or Minnesota, whatever, it doesn't you know, <laughs> doesn't make you shake a little bit. Not, not. It's a different industry. Different we, industry. we stay out of it. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and so for those reasons, you know, retail is, is where we ended up. The other thing comes back to, to infrastructure problems, actually. Um, there's a lot that's been written about uh, not enough slaughterhouses in the Northeast, especially recently. It was another New York Times article a couple of weeks ago. Um, I actually don't believe that there's as big of a slaughterhouse problem that's been advertised. It's more of a processing problem. So I can get these animals slaughtered at a number of different facilities. But to find a place where I could have them uh, butchered under USDA, which I would need to if I didn't have my own retail location, um, to have them butchered and packaged in a way that's consistent and what and looks great and is doing you know respectful to the product itself there are very few facilities that i would be comfortable working with Hmm. um so that was one of the other reasons we skewed towards retail when setting up the company was that 
I can the only the only thing that happens off site is the animals raised and slaughtered. Everything else we do in house, so we can control the way it's presented to the customer. All of our value added things. I'm not paying anyone else to make sausage, which sometimes the recipe will be good, sometimes not. You know, we're eliminating all those inconsistencies that really affect the way the the consumer sees the product. Yeah, and it's it's interesting having, you know, you look in the case and it it is. I mean, for for me, for the consumer, it's an exciting time because I look at these cuts of meat. Some of them, hmm, aren't as familiar as I might always see. But it's really, even though you're here, you are in Chelsea Market, in New York City. I mean, it's like having your own corner butcher, and you walk in and say, "Well, what is this cut? I've never seen this before." Mm-hmm. And someone can come over and you know tell me what it is, tell me how to cook it, mm-hmm. um, what to do with it, and. I'm sure you take special requests as well, right? We do. You know, because we butcher whole animals in the shop, we have everything. Now, we don't have a lot of everything. You know, we have, there's about seven pounds of beef tenderloin for every 450 pounds of boneless meat. Mm. And it, you know, our supply is far less than our demand for beef tenderloin um, and, and many other cuts. But we have things that you might not see everywhere. So the customer that wants beef tenderloin week in, week out, we're not their butcher shop. Eventually, they'll always be disappointed and they just stop coming back. Or um, maybe they'll be intrigued and learn something new and, well, and try and, some of those lesser, and lesser been, known cuts. And we've been very fortunate that our customers have taken that leap of faith with us. Um, you know, they come in for one thing, they let us sell them something else. The meat industry has, has dumbed down the cuts available. Um, that's mm-hmm. one reason people are so unfamiliar. Um, as the, the consolidation in the meat industry and the elimination of butchers' counters in supermarkets and butchers, you know, neighborhood butchers, they've had to simplify because there isn't someone to have that interaction with to tell you how to cook it, um, what to do with it, you know, what kind of cut it is. So rather than having 50 cuts, 60 cuts of beef, there's 15, 20 cuts of meat in the meat, in the meat case. So you're familiar with them. They're easy. Half the things in the case are labeled as London broil. Yeah. It doesn't really That's mean right. anything. Right. Are, are you pretty much nose to tail? or We are... 100% nose to tail. Um, so that's what I mean by uh, whole animal butchery. We bring the whole animal in and, and we utilize everything in-house. Um, you know, I, I don't think our customers realize they eat as much lamb heart as they do. Um, mm. We use it, uh, things like heart are great for, on their own, they don't sell as retail. So we don't put heart in the case. But for our value-add products, the pâtés, the chili, it just adds an incredible depth of flavor. Yeah. Well, that's the interesting thing, too, that you do have one whole section of the case devoted to prepared foods where people can get ideas of things they can mm-hmm. make on their own with yeah. these foods or just buy you've got a smoker so you can they can also mm-hmm. buy in-house smoked bacon and products mm-hmm. i mean that's great you know that that's another reason uh when we talk about cost of everything you know kitchen for us is essential it allows us to uh to utilize the whole animal um you know one of the reasons that farmers markets face a challenge is that because everything has to be made under a process under usda because they're selling at a third party location um, you're at the whim of what your slaughterhouse or processor will make for you, where we can, you know, and that has to be sent to the USDA for approval, so the slaughterhouse don't want to do that much, um, whereas we can come up with something in our shop under our regulations, which are state-regulated, um, and we want a new sausage recipe, we just make a new sausage recipe. Mm. We want to make stock, we make stock. So we can utilize much, uh, much easier 
all the different parts, which allows us to get more out of the animal. Because it's made in-house. Because it's made in-house, that's mm-hmm. right. We go under a regulation called a 20C kitchen, um, which is a, a retail license. Um, so we that's one reason we, we can sell off on-site, we can sell at farmer's markets, but after that, not so much. Well, in fact, didn't you start out selling at a farmer's market? I did, <laughs> I did. And, and when I say the, the downfall, when I, the, kind of my little knock about selling meat at farmer's markets isn't anything against farmer's markets. That's where I started. But it also showed me the limitations of what can mm-hmm. be done at a farmer's market. Um, you know, the packaging and processing costs are, are very high. When you go to a farmer's market and the meat is very expensive, it's because of the infrastructure problems we, we talked about. It's not that the farmers are making a killing by selling, you know, far, the products at very high prices. It's that they're, in some cases, just breaking even and charging, you know, 10, you know, maybe, or let's say four times more than a supermarket cut. Now, that's partly because the supermarket cuts are artificially low, but also because there's no infrastructure for the local products. Yeah. So, I mean, aside from, from infrastructure, what they're also buying is quality, mm-hmm. good quality meat. Uh, meat, 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 but what about your chickens? Everyone <laughs> raves about their... What, what's the deal with your chickens? What, what well, are, what it's funny. That the poultry is the thing I have the, the least hand in, um, and, and we probably get the best response on it. <laughs> um, so all the beef, pork, lamb, goat, I buy directly from the farmer. We send to the And goat. I mean, goat's something you can't just get at your we local just, supermarket. We just started bringing it in. Uh, we'll, we'll see. I, I still see the goat as an experiment. Uh, there's no lamb right now upstate. It's a little too early in the yeah. season, so I yeah. use it as an opportunity to get some goat in the shop and and maybe give people a gentle shove towards that direction. Uh, we'll see. Hope we sold the first round of eight goats pretty successfully. Um, and I think that we'll keep coming in the shop. But you source your chickens from... So our, our chickens come in uh, from Amish country, from Pennsylvania, mm. uh, live into the city every morning to a live poultry market in Queens called uh, Madani Halal. For me, with the poultry processing, it was very important to have the processing close to New York. Whereas everything else goes to slaughter once a week, we have uh, chickens go to slaughter three, four days a week, and the freshness is you know, very, very important. Whereas everything else is a little more durable, the beef you want to age, lamb to a lesser extent, pigs not as much, but you know, they're whole animals, they're large, they have a, a larger, longer shelf life. The chickens, and especially the small birds and game birds that we do, are incredibly perishable. So they come into the city live to Imran. Uh, he's the owner of a, a live poultry market in Queens. Um, and I just call over, and they slaughter what we need, and we get delivery three, four days a week. Um, the birds are so fresh. Sometimes they arrive, they're still warm from slaughter. Oh, and, but I think that's so, that is so cool because, you know, it's not like a, a factory you know, processed, you know, pretend meat, you know, styrofoam meat. The real when deal. They're so fresh. And when you run out, you run out. Yeah. If you don't get there early, you don't get a chicken. You don't get a chicken because they're, you know, that's it. They, yeah, people, that's, it's fine. People go crazy over the poultry. Uh, I mean, the same with the, but same with the meat. I went in buying well, something the other day. You know, the poultry gone. and pork are, are unique in some ways is that those high quality poultry and, and pork in my, in my experience don't exist in the supermarket. Whereas you can go and buy high quality beef and you can buy a beautiful prime dry aged steak and it'll taste delicious. Not it may be raised on a feedlot and you know not humanely treat, raised and it's full of hormones and antibiotics and growth promoters. But at least that from a taste perspective, the quality will be high. You know, our industry has moved so far from having quality pork and quality poultry, you know, available to consumers that it's mind blowing for people when they come in and they have a chicken that tastes like something. Yeah. You know, that has uh, some texture to the meat and it's got a richness and chickeniness. 
Uh, so those are usually the products that people go the craziest over just because what they've been buying is so far from delicious that when they experience you know great pork they're you know it's fantastic yeah well it you truly are um, one of those people making culinary history and I think the motto should be you can eat less meat just eat better meat right that's what we tell people <laughs> better quality meat and, and I think the movement is terrific mm-hmm. I love it and uh, I would like to see more of it not to be in competition with you, no, but no, we, I, we uh, need we need more people thinking this way. Well, you know, you know, more butcher things. shops will be better for everybody. You know, will it'll support more infrastructure. Will we'll be able to bring costs down for everybody, and the consumer will benefit. You know, there was a point in time there was a butcher shop in in every corner in New York. You know, Elizabeth Street at one point had in one block six butcher mm. shops. Um, we have a lot of room, you know, before there's too many of us around. Yeah. Uh, so I I hope that we have many more butcher shops opening and. You know, we we'll all have our own unique customers. Um, we just need to start getting customers in the habit of buying from butcher shops and not from supermarkets. That's right. And we're lucky here in New York to have you in New York. Well, Dixon's Farm Stand Meats. Well, I want to thank you for being a guest on today's show and sharing a lot of that background and information with us. And um, I want to also thank our sponsors, Edwards of Surrey, Virginia, and, of course, our producer, Jack Inslee, and our engineer, Nat Wiener. Again, I'm Linda Palaccio, and this has been A Taste of the Past. 